Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm Timothy Nargi, one of the ruling elders, and today we have a discussion about the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. This will be an ongoing discussion dealing with questions of justice. The discussion is hosted jointly by the men's and women's ministries of Grace Covenant Church, and anyone can join in on the discussion at any time. So today we are covering the first two questions in part three, which is, I think, probably some of the most, like, it, it is the, the talking pointist heavy, I don't know, or the talking pointiest, if we want to go that way, of um, the sections of the book, which is this idea of sinners or systems, like what is actually um, to blame for different aspects of disparity and um, discrimination and inequality. And so what is the enemy and then what rectifies that? Um, And so in the introduction to um, part three, right, he kind of talks about this need to explain, right? He used the term theodicy in an earlier chapter last that was part of last um sessions discussion which is that that explanation for evil and so when he mentions talking to um this hindu monk about like how do we explain unfairness right and what what is the way forward to solve this um and so in the hindu system it becomes this belief of karma Right. Like you must have done something to therefore deserve these terrible circumstances. And there's there's no escape from it. Right. Uh, Mark talked about seeing that disparity when he was recently uh, in Nepal. And then the the story um, from like uh, Suresh in chapter five about being born doll and how there is no escape from that, how this like system explains that like, oh, they're, they've done something wrong, so therefore they deserve this terrible system. Um, and then how we've kind of reinterpreted that where it's like, oh, the system is what is wrong. And so therefore we have to overthrow the system. Um, and how there's kind of truth and falsehood in both of those explanations. Um, and that's what these questions kind of focus on. Like particularly with the disparity question, when he asks, like, what do we prefer? Do we prefer... Um, damning stories to undamning facts. Um, and then with chapter eight, looking at um, does our vision of social justice like prefer strife to like unity um, or prefer strife and and contention to reconciliation? Like what is the allowance made for forgiveness here? Um, and... I think in both of these, he makes some excellent points. There are some points that I'm going to be very honest with you guys. I do not wholly agree with. Um, But it is an important thing to consider when we look at what makes for a news story and how does that news story then spread, right? How is a photo contextualized or how are things um, explained to us? And therefore, what should we be mad about? Which is kind of what he talked about in his preface, right? The madness machine of just like, what am I supposed to be angry about now? And how sometimes those things that we are asked to be angry about have very boring explanations, um, which is the kind of the point of chapter seven. Um, What did you guys notice as you were reading these chapters? Was there anything in particular that stood out to you or things that caused you to consider anything that really kind of struck your interest? 
in the opening, in the, that part three opening, sinners or systems. Um, when he when he talked about when he talked about the Hindu monk and he talked about um, man wanting to explain things, you know, mm -hmm. the the why of something. I thought about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Um, if you if I mean Abraham Maslow and and, and his his um, other psychologists who explain why man's motivated to do something and why man, you know, has this want, has this need, has all these things. If you look at some of the the social justice B and social justice A people's solutions, often social justice B solutions to systemic problems or perceived systemic problems, they all come back to the, the um, levels within Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, uh, children are shooting teachers in schools. Mm -hmm. What do we need? Hmm. We need gun control because that will keep, that will give us safety and security. We don't need to somehow um, delve into the the sin of the human condition that has caused this. We come up with other other kinds of solutions. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's kind of like viewing man's motivation as a system. And then forgetting that somewhere in there, not at the top, after self-actualization, do you then become spiritual, but Somewhere in there, maybe even below those basic needs of food and um, shelter, uh, we all need God. Mm -hmm. So I thought about, as I was reading, I thought about that. I, thought, yeah. wow. I mean, I think it's trying to, I don't know if he actually mentions uh, Rousseau. He mentioned Rousseau earlier. Uh -huh. um, okay. But I don't know if he mentioned him in this um, chapter. I think it's later in the Sinister Systems, and it was also earlier. Mm -hmm. But like Rousseau, in his writing the Social Contract, wrote about his childhood like theft of a loaf of bread, and in his explanation, the evil was not the act of him stealing. The evil was that he lived in a system that had deprived him of bread in the first place. Um, and his idea of the noble savage, that man without rules would be an entirely noble creature, and just how intensely naive that is. That if we didn't have all of these regulations and organizations and whatnot, we would be perfectly moral beings, um, because we are taught to sin through systems and societies. Um, cue all so, the Joker memes of Gauguin, we live in a society. In, in the in this in these two chapters, yeah. Um, Gauguin he writes about right, Gauguin, and Gauguin believing Rousseau to, mm -hmm. to Tahiti, believing that mm -hmm. about Rousseau and getting there and finding out that you know it's not, it's nothing different here than there is on the streets of Paris. Mm -hmm. It might even be worse. Yeah, I thought these were two very. Like, two pretty clear chapters. Mm -hmm. Not black and white, but pretty clearly stated. Mm -hmm. 
I think as always, there's there's that danger of oversimplifying. And that he rightly talks about, right, that we can oversimplify statistical data to uh, mean con- like conclusions that it does not actually imply. Um, and then we use that as justification that because these statistics exist, therefore, this injustice also exists. And like sometimes that is wildly inaccurate, but also sometimes the need to not see injustice because you just want things to just, well, it's explained away, um, is also like very tempting. And he does mention that briefly, but I feel like he could have spent a little bit more time talking about that. Um, I think especially like the the terrible irony of the phrase, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because that originated as a joke yeah. in the 1700s because you, you can't. Because mm-hmm, right. if you're bending over and sure. trying to pull yourself up, like, where are you going? Yeah. Um, and that had crossed my mind mm-hmm. many years ago, but I never explored. Yeah, but we just use it without thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought I could pull my boots on. Right. But I don't get anywhere. Right. So it was meant to reference like an impossible thing. So someone pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and is just, you know, hitting a tree. That's just, yeah. it's not going to move. So. Yeah. Um, But there's also like, this is a paraphrase of a a Dr. King quote of that it is a a terrible thing to tell a bootless man, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So that idea of like, well, if you just tried harder there, you wouldn't have any suffering. And I, I don't think that that justification, it sometimes is used by people like, well, if you just tried harder, I don't think that that is the answer either. And so I think Thaddeus Williams does a good job of talking about how it is both mm-hmm. like there is an element of personal choice. And he gives the um, example of like pe- people with different priorities, different people, different backgrounds, given the same opportunity in a, a less evil world, like free from all isms that would prejudice choices or impact opportunities that would still yield different results because people are different. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, right? Because, I think what we think we mean when we say we want equality is that we want equity. We want we want equal outcome. Yeah. Or we want outcome tailored that those that may make may be in different circumstances or may make choices that continue them in their circumstances. Mm-hmm. We want outcome that floats them up to or down to wherever. Um, someone to, someone feels that that equity is. I think, yeah, because true equality would mean exact sameness, no variation, no um, independence, no diversity. If we wanted to take like the, the barest dictionary definition of equal. But when it comes to pursuing things like equity, it's that everyone has the same chance to be. Um, like it's that difference between what's fair versus what's equal and how that like that's a tightrope sometimes where I think we we lean too hard one way instead of addressing like what would make this fair versus what would make it equal and how do we like adjust that. Anything that stood out to y'all in the chapters? Um, in first chapter, first chapter we're covering tonight, which is Chapter seven, not the first chapter. Uh, disparity does not equal discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he lays out the three premises there on page 81, step one, two, and three. Um, you're really getting to the heart of you know, how their, um, their, their thought process, but they don't probably understand their thought process. Um, and it shows how really illogical it is, but it also shows that I think the, the root of it is uh, covetous, covetousness. Yeah. Yeah. People, all, they, they want what they don't have, mm -hmm. and, you know, violation of the commandments. And I think that's the root issue with all of this uh, going on. So that, and I don't actually think he explicitly says that, but he's getting towards it. So that was just something that stuck out to me. I think that that root sin can identify a lot of, or a percentage of, definitely people who um, see systemic aggression as inherently, like that this is something that always exists. This is something that is always wrong. This is something that I have to overthrow to be right. Um, and I think when he makes a good point when he talks about how constantly looking for injustice might actually blind you to true injustices occurring. Mm. Um, because constantly like being on the lookout or reacting or ready to, you know, go up in arms about whatever new outrage or perceived outrage is there that lets quieter evil just sort of blip on by like the whole system of redlining, right. Where no one necessarily like, did investigative research into that until much, much later, right? There were other things to be mad at. We can just let this kind of putter on. Um, but it also makes it about you. Yeah. Not You're not even looking outside of yourself and caring about others. You're just caring about how it affects you. And so yeah. Everything's defined by what you are perceiving, what you think. And again, it's narcissistic in some senses. It's, I mean, it's like Sid, the Hindu monk, with his privileged life, it's this sense of entitlement, right? I did something good in a previous life to store up enough karma, therefore I deserve this. But that same kind of entitlement permeates someone who I think is too interested in finding injustices to explain away um, disparities in their life. That, well, I am entitled to this, therefore I deserve this. Hmm. It's this idea of, of assuming automatically that you are owed something. And particularly, uh, like, recently in conversation that you're owed restitution. Yeah. Other thoughts? But that, that, that kind of stuff doesn't play out in sports. No. And people don't want it to play out because they want their best, you know, if they're rooting for a certain team and they're better than the other team, they want their team to crush the other team. Mm -hmm. They don't want the two teams equal. Salary caps. Yeah. Salary caps imposed on teams, market. Um, I, I think I think that within some organizations, perhaps when the whistle blows and starts the game, you don't you don't see it or want it. But within the structure, um, if you look at uh, well, that's to bring. They want to try to bring parity to the league with lower market teams up with the higher market teams, which technically is a form of socialism within yeah. the league. Yeah. But I'm talking like, I don't think people can be fully consistent. I think there's always going to be some inconsistencies in this. I mean, I mean, it's interesting that you guys bring up sports because when it comes to like 
questions about uh, unfair systems, I mean, the NAA, uh, or NCAA, what that does with college athletes. Yeah, well, it's a whole... That's a whole other yeah. nasty bucket of worms right now. And so, like, does and, that... And what it's created right. is something that will be... Um, I don't know, will be re-examined under some kind of lens um, five years from now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's starting to be re-examined under under some kind of lens um, um, of of equity and equality and parity. Um, because if you've got a if you've got a school that has a you know a massive and deep booster organization. And they can offer, um, you know, name, image, and likeness deals uh, for some student to come to that school. Well, there's going to be those that can, mm -hmm. perhaps University of Alabama, and there's going to be those that can't. Uh, you know, Dartmouth College or you know something, something, something like that. So five years from now, there will be a segment of society who will look at that and say, you know, we can't have this. NASCAR, mm -hmm. you know, all of all the different rules that try to bring parity to the to the capability of the automobile. Um, I, I think it's just I, I see if they went all the way, then there would be no such thing as pro sports anymore. You won't have a trophy, you won't have a championship to win for because that means one team's higher than the other. Yeah. So that's where I'm saying people are inconsistent. They're rooting for sports, mm -hmm. but then on the other hand, they're saying that there's, you know, I want this because I don't have that or I'm not equal. Yeah. That is totally inconsistent. Yes. If you want to be totally consistent, you shouldn't root for any sports yes. team. That's very And I don't, so. <laughs> Maybe you're the one consistent person in the No, not at all. You're I don't right. even touch sports, so I'm more concerned. <laughs> there was a there was a point in here, and I can't remember can't remember where it was in here where where I thought about the um, the idea of everybody gets a trophy, mm -hmm. um, and and I can't remember where it was where it was in here, but it, but that as I was reading that cross that. That crossed my mind. I thought, oh, yeah. Are you talking about um, the magic equality wand? It might be. Yeah, it might have been. Mm -hmm. It might have been the equality wand. Uh, page. It starts on page eighty-four, and then it goes into the Parks and Rec example of like everyone getting. Uh... So we shared our thoughts, but you said from at the beginning you had some things you didn't quite fully agree with. <laughs> Um, I mentioned some of them. It's, I think, like, when he rightly calls out oversimplification and, like, finding the moral evil in that, he then also sometimes, like, does that himself. Of Like, this is what will turn us into communist Russia. Um, and so I think, like, that is... And again, he fully confesses that he is inconsistent. That's what he says constantly in every single chapter. Yeah. But, like, it stood out more in, in this one particularly. I think also, like, leaning really heavily into... The, um, like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or the personal responsibility, um, as much as that absolutely 100% is a factor, even in his own example, he had to do away with every other kind of, like, um, 
he had to make, you know, a truly equal world. And then we give them, you know, these different characters with different values, a million dollars each, and then, you know, see what happens. Um, and so that, again, is a great example with characters that I love from a show, although I disagree with his take on Ben Wyatt. Um, it's like, I think there is that, again, that danger of like, okay, well, that is, that is an overly simple thing of just like, well, personal responsibility will solve it all. Um, and so that is something that it, you know, again, makes me want to like, you fully consider that question of, it is a terrible thing to tell a bootless man to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, that does not necessarily mean that, that no one has boops or that we have to like, you know, go out and double check because when it comes to me talking to my students, it absolutely is 100% like personal responsibility. Like um, I had a student with this past semester who um, said that the reason she was failing was because I didn't give her enough help. And I looked at her uh, and I asked her, did you ever stay after school with me? Did you respond to the emails that I sent to you and your parents asking you if you needed help with things or the messages about you missing assignments? Did you sign up for this different, you know, service that I had provided? Did you come and talk to me about anything? And no. And I went, oh, okay. So what else could I have done? Like, just tell me, because I'm out of ideas. So what, el what else could I have done? And she didn't have an answer for me. But this semester, she is trying a lot harder. And so she is replying to messages about missing assignments. She is reading her book. So I think that moment had, you know, this thing of this perceived injustice that she was failing because I wasn't helping her, but she also wasn't asking for help or responding to offers of help. Yeah. So is that disparity and discrimination or is that she didn't want to read To Kill a Mockingbird? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but even in your example, it was overcome with talking yeah. to each other. Mm -hmm. Instead of just talking about each other. Right. Or blaming each other. Right. Because we have to, like, um, when I look kids in the eyes, like, whenever, because I fully understand extenuating circumstances and absolutely 100%, like, yes, let me do whatever I can to help you. But also, what are you doing? So, what can I help you do? But what do you need to do for you? Yeah. So like. Yeah. Personal. So it's that danger of oversimplification. It's not the only answer. Yeah. But, but it, it is part of the part answer. Of the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because yeah, the whole idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstrap sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, what if you're pulling up the wrong boots? Yeah. Or the fact that the phrase itself is impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. You can have some sort of merit. You can try to do harder. But if you keep on doing, if you're trying harder to do the wrong thing, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's not, that won't fix the problem. So, um, and I'll, you, people who grew up in environments who don't have any sort of knowledge on how to even get out of the situation, it's, it won't, telling those people to do harder or to uh, try harder won't fix it so that's why mm -hmm. i personally object to that sort of idea to just do better just do <laughs> yeah. better because with it's like, what know, with what right mm -hmm. yeah. and i think there's also like it, it becomes very very easy to just be like oh okay well if everyone's doing the right thing then there's not going to be any problems but there are tons of people who are doing the right thing who still live in um impoverished or unjust circumstances 
And is that because they're not doing the right thing enough? Or is that because there's a different right thing that they should be doing? Like what explains that? Like that question with uh, Sid at the beginning of this thing, what explains this difference in circumstances, right? So do you tell someone without a home that they just need to work harder? Right. Like that, I mean, that's a poignant question coming up with Shelter Week. Maybe. <laughs> Seriously. It depends on the person. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. Yeah. But it's always something that... And that's why... And, I, yeah, he talks about how it needs to be individual. That's why I go back to the relationship yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. Instead of broad brushing, because he mentions that, mentions that earlier in the book, kind of broad brushing everyone, find out their circumstance. Right. I think as well, when it comes to the ideas of course correcting it often just paves the way for more injustice. And he gives the examples, um, or like the blame that was apportioned to um, like European Jews um, for their role in like profiting from the depression. And like, and so those laws were then, or those uh, perceived injustices were then used as justification for laws that then escalated and escalated. And so, um, his point in the beginning of that evil people make evil laws and there are systems that are damnable in what they are doing and what they are attempting to do. Um, some of those systems originated because people wanted to fix a problem. And this, their problem may have been completely erroneous or the problem may have been genuine. Like we we're doing animal farm right now in um, ninth grade and um, we read part of the communist manifesto last class. Because we have to understand, like, what inspired these people to rebel? Was there no reason to rebel? Absolutely not. Like, we talked about the like situation in Russia and what was happening. Um, what was the difference between the upper class and the working class in um, this time period? Was there no reason to rebel? Of course not. Right? But then what happened afterwards? How was that equality pursued? And then what did it ultimately lead to? And I've already had kids asking like, well, this, cause we defined what communism was, like what it means in the dictionary, what its goals initially were. And so, so many of my kids were like, well, that sounds wonderful. I'm like, I know it does. Yeah. I know it does so, until so it's power. And I explain it. Like I give the example of kids who like stayed for daycare. And I was like, if you ever had the job of passing out snacks and like several of my kids raised their hands. And I was like, and you saw that there was a really good snack. Who got that snack? And they were like, me. Exactly. That's why. <laughs> That's why it doesn't work. No. Does it imply is that every single person? Is he... When you have someone in charge of sharing. It's like. With, it's no longer equal. Right. It's like every single person within your community is somehow benevolent. You know, it, yeah. it, it's that's just not. It's just not the case. Or in Rousseau's case, that they would be benevolent without laws. Right. So. Well, you could easily do an experiment and you need 50 people inside, <laughs> inside of a room. The Massachusetts yeah. Compact. Yeah. The, right. the, uh, um, the, the first winter, um, the um, uh, colonists at that time, when, they, when the separatists came to. Yeah. Um, the New World, or they came, they landed in the Bay Colony. Um, they had a bit of an altruistic view over how everyone would pitch in, mm -hmm. and 
Many thought that others were going to do all the pitching in, and uh, they nearly starved. It's the assumed similarity bias. It's um, that as, like false assumption that everyone has been raised with your worldview. That everyone yeah, has the same opportunities yeah. um, that you have had. Everyone will have the same reaction to circumstances that you will have. And so you often see the assumed similarity bias at play whenever people respond with, well, I wouldn't have done that, or why didn't they just do this, or that was never a problem for me. I'm happy for you. Um, but not everyone is the same, right? That's what his whole thing is. And that true justice would um, celebrate that, right? There is intended to be diversity within the body of Christ. And Paul's image of a body, mm -hmm. which has different functions, is, I think, a perfect explanation for that. Because someone's got to be a toenail. So... <laughs> it's... But there is... Toenails are important. I'm toenails proud to be one. Yeah. <laughs> Something for the boots to cover. I know, right? And then you can pull yourself by your bootstraps. But that, that need to understand that sameness is not the same as justice. Yeah. That like flattening everything in order to make a truly level playing field is going to wreak havoc with biodiversity. And that's one of like the, the undamning facts that he mentions of just like geography, like what do people have access to? What explanation does that factor into? And it's like, oh, there's fewer, you know, phone lines in this area. That area is a desert. So, yeah. yeah. I think we, we, we try, when we, when we see something bad happen, we try to explain how that bad thing occurred. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times it's just not possible. Yeah. You know, and because there's so many factors that are, in, are at play. Mm-hmm that sometimes we don't even see and there's no way to measure. Yeah. But we, we often want, we, we think there is a human tendency to, even if we can't explain it, we're not always willing to say, I can't explain that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, we're going to find a reason. I, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know why that is. I see that there are, there is, this fact, and this fact, and this fact, and this fact. I can't really connect them. I can't find a correlation between mm -hmm. the facts and the outcome. So I'll fill it in. Right, yeah. An ism. Mm -hmm. It's... That will explain the disparity. Racism, it's capitalism, it's geographyism, it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, it's... it's I need to, I, a man, I think, needs a is often driven by this is probably in maslow's hierarchy of needs somewhere um driven to explain something yeah it's the theodicy that like you have yeah. to explain the evil because we can't ever be the bad guy right like he makes the connection <laughs> no. we don't want to sign up to be the bad guy. right he makes that connection to like heroes in pop culture um and like that everyone wants to be that hero of their own story. And so if 
bad things are happening to you, it is because the bad guy is doing it. Whoever your antagonist is, whatever dark side you are fighting, it's not, you're not the problem. Right? Yeah, okay. You want to... Yeah. Um, there are people who are, like, trying to thwart you from being your best self or from winning the day or from finding the Horcrux or whatever it is. Okay. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and along with... Um man being naturally a reasoning um, creature. We want to find out why something is. Mm -hmm. When we can't find it out, we get frustrated and we become very stubborn in that. Mm -hmm. And that usually um, leads to assuming something that actually isn't a reality. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate, as I always do, I appreciated his C.S. Lewis quote that he included. Uh, it's on page 88. Um, suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that. Or it is a feeling of disappointment. or And even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible. If it is the second, then it is, I'm afraid... The first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. And I think we see that, like, the letdown when something has a normal explanation. And then the the need to resist it. That, like, well, that doesn't take into account for everything. And so there's still some elements of the first interpretation of the facts or of the report that will justify the outrage, right? So finding out that it isn't as bad is sometimes like, ah, but I wanted it to be, right? Because then I get to have these feelings of self-righteousness or self-righteous indignation. Yeah, I feel that when I am. Whenever I watch like those unsolved mysteries, <laughs> and it, it, it um it boils down to a whole bunch of theories uh, a lot of them are like great they make a lot of sense and then when the facts are actually given out you realize that each one um actually doesn't make sense mm -hmm. and it the entire thing actually boils down to something that's very common and i get disappointed because it's mm -hmm. like but it's it's not <laughs> it ruins the entire thing what how yeah. yeah it's not as good a story yeah there's no <laughs> it's like so mundane but i mean we're dancing kind of around the the like psychological factors that lead into conspiracy theories uh um, yeah, yeah the lewis um uh the lewis quote had me thinking about conspiracy theories, um, daily news, the newspaper, um, you know, many times, um, um, particularly now, when just the urge to be the first to break the news, something comes out that's not whole cloth, um, it gets picked up and carried by a number of different outlets who agree with it. 
a number of other different outlets who aren't saying or rarely say, wait, wait, let's learn more uh, because this has, you know, one thing or another that uh, doesn't necessarily, it sounds like there's more to this. Um, and then when there does come up to be more, in outlets that may have promoted the story in the first place will continue with it and sort of disparage this more and more and more as if to say, well, but... You know, we don't need more. We, we don't need more because, yeah. you know, this is... And then the other, another set of outlets will, you know, I don't know, take the whole thing apart. The, the Chinese spy below <laughs> is... Uh, you know, in the news, in the news today. And when I, when I first saw this picture of this Chinese spy balloon over Montana, Montana I thought, Montana, how far is Montana from China? This thing didn't just materialize. I mean, there's, we have stuff that watches the skies and somebody had to have some kind of idea. And there are probably photos of this thing every three feet around the world, you know, traveling. And it suddenly shows up over Montana. I thought, there's got to be more to this story than what I'm reading. My first thought was, what are you looking at in Montana? There's missile silos there. That is, yeah. That. Yeah, there's a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff defensive radar installation, just all kinds of stuff. But, you know, for, I, I just, it, it, it struck me as, wow, this is not a good thing. But what I'm reading, I don't think tells the whole story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's going to be picked up for the next two weeks. And then someone will say something somewhere along the right. line. But, it will be, um, uh, will we say, thank God, mm -hmm. you know, it's not even it's not as bad, bad as that, or... Are we going to be disappointed? Jumping to conclusions. Yeah. And I, there's, I think, um, uh, I think we read in uh, uh, Proverbs about jumping to conclusions. Ecclesiastes, I think, about jumping to conclusions and the, you know, the folly and the end result that is. I think something a lot of people also don't take into consideration is the business model that demands incomplete stories. Because by reporting part of it yeah. and then stay tuned yeah. for, and then how that yeah. is designed to keep people interested, yeah. keep people engaged yeah. on their different um, social media interfaces, different apps. Yeah. Um how they have to fill hours talking about nothing or just punditry and whatnot. It's not yeah. news. It's entertainment. Yeah. And so it's, I think a lot of times that is not taken into account. Um, a lot of people do take that into account. Those who can manipulate Those who can profit cycle, from it. Those who can manipulate that cycle do take that into account. And yeah. it's probably the first thing that's discussed at the board meeting. At yeah. At the... At the 
you know, I don't know, the producer's desk in the halls of legislatures and such. It's probably the first thing that's discussed. Um, Caucuses. To continue that, like, talking about the madness machine and the the need for incomplete stories and kind of the, the algorithmic business model of um, manufactured outrage. Um, Appendix E, which starts on page 206 in the end, talks about engaging the culture war and how a lot of that media is not beneficial. Like if you think about what they are trying to make you mad about, and this is on every single point in the political spectrum that you could possibly be on, there are people who do this. And so what is this actually achieving? Is this achieving something for good or is this trying to make you mad to then keep you engaged to then justify, um, you know, further uh, insidious like implications and assumptions and conclusion jumping and, um, so I I recommend reading Appendix E if you have not read that. All right, let's move on to Chapter Eight. Yeah. Chapter Eight. So Chapter Eight, the color question: Does our vision of social justice promote racial strife? Any anyone have comments about that? This chapter. It made reference to that that man who was on his belly, who the police officers mm -hmm. shot and killed. I think it was. I think that's a reference to the one that I saw a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Just the. I don't even. I don't think there's a word to explain it, it other than brutality mm -hmm. of that. But like, I don't know if there's a stronger word to use in that. And um, how many people recognize other names, but not this individual who got gunned down like that, just out of cold blood. Yeah. How how often things like this happen that just never make are never brought to anyone's attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think it shouldn't even be brought to our attention. I don't know, as like something that we're told that you have to care about this, you know, mm -hmm. or is it something that we should care about just because we need to seek justice? But is it, is it good for us to be told by the media we need to care about this, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's kind of what we were talking about earlier with the idea of manufactured outrage. I think there's a lot of like quiet tragedies that because it's not part of certain people's realities, it therefore does not exist. There's a lot of abstraction. Um, but I mean, the data in, is in itself harrowing, right? Even with the point uh, in chapter seven that the data can also just have undamning conclusions and point to things, there is damning data as well. And so what does that point to? What does that explain? Um, and how much of this just further echoes Dave's point of our need for God. One of the things I think that stood out to me is like researching like who first coined or started profiting from a particular term 
Um, like for instance, um, the term white fragility from Robin D'Angelo, um, and how almost immediately, like the book became a bestseller and like there's, uh, speaking tours and engagements and just like what, um, profit she made from, um, the term that she coined, like that wasn't necessarily, um, and I, I'm like trying to like, I guess, dance around because there are aspects of um, culture in America that are explained by the term that she uses. But it also like almost immediately, the question is who, who are you actually speaking up for? Like, did you research and try and invest in communities? Did you um, like talk with people of color? Did you get their experiences or did you use your own term of the privilege that you have in order to automatically have your book be the first book that people see. And so like, what is the actual voice behind these particular terms? Um, and uh, the quote on starting on the bottom of page 98 and going into page um, 99 um, from Muzal Garbi, who is a sociologist, uh, sociologist, it talks about how he points out that relatively well-off, highly educated liberal whites tend to be among the most zealous in identifying and prosecuting new forms of racism. Whites tend to be more woke on racial issues than the average black or Hispanic. They tend to perceive much more racism against minorities than most minorities themselves. Indeed, evidence is growing that many fashionable formulations of racism and anti-racist activism may be directly pernicious for people of color. Um, and while there are some of that that, like, I may dangerously lead toward oversimplifying. Um, I think, again, there is this need for um, people to prove that they are compassionate. Like they have to be, they have to show everyone that they are, that they care, that they are woke, that they get it. And so they will start like advocating for people who are not matching their demographic without listening to those people. Um, like the the idea of the the morality police in social media, it often um, in, involves speaking for others instead of listening to the people who are hurt by that narrative or who are hurt by that system. What were y'all's thoughts on that? Anecdotally, I've I've, I've seen that definitely. Mm -hmm. Like what do you mean? Like you talk to people, even within our community, like Williamsburg, you know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> you, you, you talk to, uh, like, as the book says, white, uh, liberal females. <laughs> and they, Thank you for nodding at me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear you. But it's, they, they have, um, they, they have this opinion and the way they, the, the way they feel and, uh, and others too, not just them, but a lot of people who hold this view, they, they hold it as a virtue. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is happening. We need to do something about it. And it kind of just stops at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to vote for people who's going to, who, who will fix it. And um, I, I just growing up, I've, I've seen a lot of that. And, mm -hmm. and it's it's a certain um, type of person that really just they advocate for it with their mouths and then they don't want to 
do anything actually worth <laughs> worth anything to fix the problem you know <clears throat> yeah, well actual societal change is hard and people die that's the terrible truth of humanity actual social change is hard and people die yeah and so if i can just tweet mm -hmm. right. you know then it's fine that i've proved that i'm a good person that i know about it's this tweeting the approved narrative yeah and it's this because my college professor told me so and <laughs> you know where my parents told me so Therefore, aren't, this is true. Aren't all of these people educators? Most of them actually are. Yeah, a lot of them are. Academic. Or they have become educators they because they have made programs based on their Academics. I mean, this is where usually this is the this is the classic cycle that the new ideas of the future generation start in academia, and then they move down, then to permeate to the culture, then they become policy, and then the next thing comes and. Every 20, 30 years it happens. And there are and there are rewards for doing the research <clears throat> and writing the book that will identify white fragility or something. And now they have tenure or now they have the something or other, something or other visiting fellow in such and such um, award within the group. And now they become a mouthpiece. Um, and again, I go back to motivation. If my motivation is to <clears throat> write something new, um, you know, I got to find something to write about. It's that question of, is your motivation to do good or is right. your motivation to prove your good? Yeah. Yeah. And that's like that question because doing good is inconvenient. It will cost you something. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're told in scripture, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's part of there's the absolute travesty mm -hmm. of a, a huge percentage of the American church in like word of faith circles, but also progressive circles of just like the thought of, of God's sovereignty in allowing for suffering and of not immediately rectifying injustice this side of heaven, mm -hmm. how much of a frustration point that is for people to the point where you know, people preach that sickness is unbelief um, or that like participation in evil systems, you know, cannot be forgiven by the blood of Christ. You have to have further repentance of what you are um, more so than just what was already accomplished for you on the cross. Um, there's this need to explain oh, supernaturally why you don't have everything that you want. It's because the devil's after you or because uh, Satan's afraid of you. And I'm like, that's hysterical. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> like, so you have to be kept down because, and it's, I was talking about this randomly in Tim Coyle's Hebrew poetry class, because this is relatively recent news, but Kenneth Copeland has a pacemaker. <laughs> 
And he was bragging about how he could pay for it in one go and how it wasn't that amazing that God made it work. And I was like, hold on. Yeah, the fact you need one. Slow your roll. <laughs> so that's <laughs> makes me so mad. It just <laughs> But there's there it's that theodicy again that that I can prove I'm a good person and therefore I deserve all of this amazing stuff, right? I am a little God, if we follow that thought to its natural conclusion, which several of them are very brazen about, Chris Vallotton being one, Todd White. Um, and so, like, you therefore, if you have anything wrong, it's because you're being spiritually oppressed. And it's because um, there's there has to be a reason, like we were talking about earlier, there has to be something that is making this unjust. So either it's because of something you're doing, you don't have enough faith to be healed, you don't, there's unforgiveness in your heart, there's, you know, other uh, things that explain it away, or it's because uh, you would be too powerful. And so they have to stop you. And so it's a conspiracy to get you. And it just becomes, I mean, exhausting and confusing. Like what, what now? That's like, what's the problem now? And why haven't you yet achieved your final form, Frieza? Um, which is a Dragon Ball reference that I don't expect anyone else to get. <laughs> and I'm very sorry I made it. Okay. I think Elijah got it. <laughs> I, I watch other ones, but not that one. Not the, not the, yeah. <sighs> Um, that point about further forgiveness, he mentions that later on in the chapter, um, uh, chapter eight with the color question of a particular instance. Uh, and he ex like kind of explores that to its fullest extent. It's like, what does this actually mean? Um, starting on page 101, right? Um, so the idea of like the horrific tragic um history of imperialism of colonialism etc but that being an additional thing to be forgiven for that um your participation or your benefiting from those systems um is something that the blood of christ doesn't cover like that being its fullest consent and so therefore is as um Yuan, who he's quoting in this speech, who made this point, as she points out that uh, whiteness is something that people have to be forgiven from, not from God, but from other people. And so who then is in charge of justice? And so kind of the, the follow-up questions that he asks about this, like if we follow this point to its natural conclusion, no one is saved because it, the blood of Christ was not enough. There is further forgiveness to be purchased from other humans who are also fallen. And so who then can be saved? It's, uh, I mean, it's the question the disciples ask Christ after his interaction with the rich young ruler, right? So then no one can, especially if you follow this thought, like salvation is bankrupt then if there is additional forgiveness to be sought beyond what the blood of Christ has covered for you. What were y'all's thoughts on that section? I think it goes without saying that the opinion is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
in, in one sense, it's a gospel issue because it perverts the gospel. You know, it distracts from the finished work of Christ. It puts a barrier between people by... Um, I think it goes along with, uh, you talked about white supremacy, not even necessarily being a skin color, but more so a, a way people act and behave. So it's not even separating people by race. It's it's like separating people by some weird um, culture, cultural norm of some sort. And um, that takes away from the finished work work of Christ, because in Christ we can be reconciled to each other. So. If, uh, I remember when this, when these conversations started in the mainstream in 2020, you know, BLM riots and all that stuff and, um, the whiteness. And I know it doesn't necessarily mean skin color, but it's rooted in that and definitely applied to people of, lighter color and if if people are doing what they are because of what they look like or where they grew up have no uh, control on their own or have things out of their control well they're te technically not doing anything wrong they're just being who they already are so there's no there's no where there's why they're being inconsistent why are they getting so mad because it's just who they are it's what they say so if that's who they are, that's what they do. So a, a dog has four legs and runs because that's what dogs do. So I'm trying to point out the inconsistency of the argument, which which always struck me as like, you're not really thinking through and you're not treating people uh, as individuals and those who bear the Imago Dei, that they, need to, they have inherent dignity, yet they do sin and cause problems for others. But when you treat them as a group, there is no, there's no, there's never going to be any unity because you're dealing with, they whine about systems causing problems, but then they treat everyone as a system. Mm -hmm. And so you never, you never get to resolution because there's no ever uh, relationship and there's never, can never be a restitution because systems can't repent and have reconciliation. Only people can. <clears throat> and so it's just the whole, the whole their whole system and their whole way of arguing is just so inconsistent. But it comes from true injustice out there. And then I think people now, like uh, D'Angelo and some of these writers, they exploit it because they're making big bucks off it now. And now they're going around the country talking. And I saw some of the, 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 the numbers some of these guys were paid. And there was one of them that spoke, I think, Kendi or Zendi, I don't know how to pronounce it. Oh, Kendi, yeah, Euromax County. I think he spoke in Fairfax County or something, and they listed how much they paid him. And I was like, jeez. And they talk about how the teachers, they don't make any money. And this guy just shows up for one night and makes this boatload of money, and then he leaves and goes to the next place. And I'm like, oh, uh, maybe, maybe at one point they truly, maybe they still do. I don't know. I don't want to speak, but they're clearly after like paychecks right now, some of them. And they're making tons of money off this stuff. I think it's it becomes really it. difficult to determine the genuine. And then, how, what good is it doing? 
Well, it's doing good for them in their pockets. Correct. But like, what's like, is it making systemic changes in? Uh, no, because the whole thing is defined right. by a negative. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. The the whole foundation is defined by an anti something. Yeah, that's a great. Uh, Not a positive. It's, it, yeah. it's that's very a great uh, observation. It's all defined by a negative. Yeah. So there, there's no love. It's not defined by love at all. It's defined by power structures and control, and even, even if there are legitimate claims and concerns, it's 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 all grounded in fix it yeah. instead of let's love people together. And fomenting covetousness. I think that you said covetousness yeah. earlier. And and the positive call to action that they have for my my incredibly white blonde haired. <laughs> blue-eyed <laughs> brother right. in Christ. It's like, okay, what he asks, okay, what can I do under your system to remedy the problem that you're presenting? Like, oh, you just give us some money. <laughs> you know, it's like that's just just donate more money, uh, or just give up your job, give up your position for somebody who's suffering. And um, it's like how convenient. I mean, there is always that danger of oversimplification as well of people who don't want to address anything, right? That that very like feel good narrative of just one day a man gave a speech about a dream and then everything was fixed. And like that does not address the fact that that man was shot five years later um, or that uh, like Virginia's own history with, with massive resistance. Um, like I... We did a project in tandem with To Kill a Mockingbird where they researched a Supreme Court case. And for my kids who researched Brown versus Board, part of their paper was then researching the, the fallout from it and just how much there was and just how upsetting that was for so many of my kids of learning that people resisted educating um, everybody in schools for 15 years. Um, like one of my students, her dad was an elementary schooler in the 70s in Prince Edward County, and they closed their schools rather than educate children of color for five years. And so that was part of his childhood growing up was not going to a school, like, you know, because they were refusing to integrate. And so it kind of raises that question again of like, what good is this doing? So if you're calling this particular, um, like, speech that's drawing, raising awareness of, uh, you know, like white fragility or these other like buzzwordy terms, is that actually doing any good or is that just making you look good and therefore giving you money? So is it actually pursuing change or is it just tossing buzzwords around? Because as we mentioned before tonight, change is difficult and it is like, terrifying sometimes as to what change means for you like what does that mean that you have to change like for people who have these speaking engagements where does that money go right like is there a a, a sense of transparency there that if you are profiting off of raising awareness of injustice are you then doing as much to fight injustice as well or do you just move to the next company yeah, and maybe some are doing something with it. Mm -hmm. Some aren't. The one of the BLM founders, if you read about her, but she did well with cash. <laughs> yeah. So 
that's why and then people become cynical about some of these movements and then you're doing even more harm again right because now people are like well then it's not worth it yeah yeah so if another one pops up that's in similar vein but actually maybe legit people right. are like well, well that's too no i don't trust them so I, it's like this is a terrible reference to make and i'm very sorry but it's like that episode diversity day from the office <laughs> like that's <laughs> Yeah. Does that mean that that training is not necessary? Absolutely not. But, like, is it effective? That's... Just make people feel weird. Makes people <laughs> feel weird. Yeah. Especially because they went through that whole rigmarole, like, in the plot of the episode, right. um, for everybody to sit through that when it was really only intended for Michael because he was being racist. So, <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> that's what we forget sometimes. <laughs> so... What was that training that we got in work about the inclusion and diversity? We just had to read something. Yeah. Yeah. There's two two modules and then answer questions online. Because then, but then, like, what what good is that doing? Like, is that, as Tim keeps mentioning, that personal connection? You know, yesterday it was racist, but I watched this video today that I might work, and now I'm no longer a racist. (laughs) I I now know how to treat people. The racism that was in me is now, I'm going to play both sides of this for a second. Play both sides. Go ahead. Because I had to just do one the other day. (laughs) And I was going through it, and a lot of it was like, this is, oh my goodness, this is just why. And then I was really thinking, I thought, okay, maybe pe- there are people out there who don't know. Yeah. So one of them I had to do was like uh, sexual harassment training. Mm-hmm. And some of the stuff I was thinking, yeah, this is like common sense stuff, but maybe people don't realize there are some common. So, okay, I can see that. But then on the other side, it's government mandated and the companies have to do it to keep their whatever status that they can have. And laws and regulations and rules do nothing for the heart because... A lot of times, the companies and the departments are required to have the quota. All the employees have to do it. And so people just go click, 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 yeah. get it done. And they're not either really learning anything mm-hmm. or the, the thing being pushed down to the companies is not helpful at all because it's, there's no relationship. There's just a, we checked our boxes and we did what we needed to do to stay compliant. Yeah. And the government thinks that's a great thing. Everyone's right. So you've done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you haven't really done but it did you inside, do it? in your heart. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but my first reaction sometimes when seeing like a new training, because we do like so many, uh, my um, almost always my first reaction is, ugh, like that, <laughs> that's okay. Like we have to sit through like, um, like economic uh, fairness and like um, anti-corruption training because a situation of one of the principals in WJCC from a few years ago. And I'm like, so we all have to sit through this 20 minute module because you didn't prosecute someone in time. Mm-hmm. So like, is this, so it's a reminding teachers not to print things on school paper and not addressing someone who stole millions of dollars from you. So I don't know that this is having the effect that you want it to, but I appreciate the intent But. It just becomes so easy to dismiss, which then further fuels people thinking that uh, reconciliation or restitution or confronting this kind of injustice is not necessary mm-hmm. because it's just a module that you can click through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, um, it causes you to have greater blinders 
to things that are really going on, and it creates cynicism. Yeah, you know that um, that we're going to address sexual harassment in this organization by having everyone sit individually at their computers and go through a you know a few scenarios and answer answer some questions. And then if you answer them wrong, you get a little guided, you know. You could just take the quiz Discussion. That's it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, uh, um, that without relationship and without heart change, that's often forced mm-hmm. through relationship. And that's, you know, heart change with Christ is, is forced through you realizing that you have, or you coming to the light of having a broken relationship and that you know if you don't do that individually then uh, um, nothing develops you don't move forward you just yeah like the the thing I had to take is basically don't do this don't do that you shouldn't do this this is bad but there was never any like standard why it was bad and there was never any positive like treat people with respect honor them above yourselves like it was all again defined by the negatives, and that does nothing for it. It's like here's the line. You can get this close. That's it. <laughs> and it's like yeah. It's... Yeah, I can measure myself against. Yeah, that. yeah. It's I like can... as long as you don't do this, we're not going to fire. <laughs> I can measure myself <laughs> yeah. easier against the negative yeah. because I can, not s- that. I can yeah. see how I've exceeded right. it yeah. rather than having it's, to it's view like what's really positive and seeing how how. How short I fall. It's yeah. a classic that? The thing you see in the Gospels and like even the common understanding of the Ten Commandments today. Well, mm-hmm. I didn't kill anyone, so there's, yeah. like, you know, Jesus says when you hate your right. brother, that's murder. So, right. Have you been angry today? Yeah. So, uh, since we're approaching ending time, I think it'd be good to talk about page 106 and 107, where he talks about uh, unity was crucial to the early church. Mm-hmm. Multi- mm-hmm. Yes. So let's let's end the discussion tonight on about this the, the unity. So in in some way, which I find really fascinating about the spread of the gospel through the very early centuries, um, from this small nation state um, all across the the connected civilized world um, which was a pretty barbaric place um, it grew and grew and spread under oppression um, And it had to be, it had to be in, in unity, of the work of God, the work, work of the Holy Spirit. But it had to be through unity, vice versus um, through competition. Because the barbaric world that it was spreading in was a world of competition. You know, our regional God is better than your regional gods. Look at our regional God in Rome. Look at the gold he wears. 
yeah, I think it was an, uh, I don't know if it was an absence of um, competition, but, but it was truly unity that was so different from others' lived experiences. Sid, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, is, that, was a, that is a religion of competition or a culture of competition. But it's also a culture of fixed competition because there's nothing you can do to change caste. Right. So the comp- yeah. so the so competition the, exists. The level the competitive levels yeah. are already so. are already established by some by some outside order or I, by those on the top of the order yeah. who continue to keep them keep the order. Yeah. And unity isn't equity. And unity's not equality. Unity is I was thinking when you were talking mathematics, or when you were talking about equality, I was thinking, well, you know, mathematics, we need to basically, you got an equal sign. Mm-hmm. This equals that. That's it. And unity is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and one equals one. I think he, he made this point. Um, Back in question three, that is kind of like reiterated in this example of the early church. Um, not, I'm sorry, not question three. Um, question four, which was, does our vision of social justice take any group identity more seriously than our identities in Adam and in Christ? Mm. And in this example of the early church of like, it, it, it takes into account the fact not that these old identities don't matter and don't have tragic histories behind them. But there is a new identity that you are in Christ. And so that entire aspect of what you were has been subsumed by the perfection of who he is or should be right through progressive sanctification. Um, And so it's no longer your enemy. It is your brother. And so what do you do to um, reconcile like with your human, you know, brother who has done things to you potentially historically, but also reconciling yourself, what you have done and what the both of you have done against a holy God. So that vertical relationship matters more. And what does that vertical relationship call you to do, but to treat in the horizontal relationships between people versus individual people to God, people to people, what are you called to do? And so that point that he makes, right, um, how would Christians ever show the tribalized world what real unity looks like if they got swept up in such a never-ending game of grievances, treating one another as exemplars of their ethnic groups rather than their shared identity in Christ? And that kind of reiterates that point that was made in chapter four. What identity matters more? Biblical unity and true unity is found in forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation. Without those, you cannot have unity. We are forgiven by God first, and we are redeemed to him and reconciled to him. And by that, we are enabled to forgive others um, 
um, see that they are redeemed in Christ and we're able to reconcile our lives with them. And by that, true unity comes about. And it's our unity in Christ that compels us and helps us take those blinders off um, in order to see others. I think it's important as well to not just use like the phrase of like being in Christ as like just that um, exculpates you from like, well, it doesn't matter anymore because haha. Um, I think of the example of Zacchaeus um, after his meeting with Christ and his coming to himself. Like it mentions the lengths that he went to give restitution. So not just uh, necessarily repenting of collaborating with the Romans, but repenting of the cheating that he had done and that he was going to pay restitution fourfold of people that he knew that he had wronged. And that was something that is seen as part of his restoration. It's not something that he has to do to earn forgiveness. He has been forgiven, but it is something that he knows he must do because he is called to be a member of that community. He is called to be a brother in Christ. And what would be Christ-like? But he does it out of his own heart recognition of where he wronged people. Right. It wasn't something that people shamed him into doing. It was a moment of, oh my gosh, what is my soul? Yeah. Yeah. Which that explanation helps with our earlier discussion about how was it D'Angelo who was in the the speeches saying, you know, you got to fix relationships with people. Oh, no, that was, uh, oh gosh, I forgot how to pronounce it. It was a different person. Uh, Uwan, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, Mackenzie Uwan. But yeah, that's that there's further forgiveness to be pursued. And so it's not done from a recognition of your own sin. It's done from this person pointing out that your existence is sinful and therefore you have to pursue restitution. I mean, it's like John Tetzel selling indulgences. Yep. Because what has been is what will be and there's nothing new under the sun. I think that scripture that he, um, the second to the last paragraph, quotes the scripture, these things. Oh, yeah. Um, or these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. And, um, you know, I think that's, if we want to call to action, that is our call to action. Speak the truth to each other. Seek for peace, not tear people down by saying, oh, it's your fault that my community is struggling. So that doesn't fix anything. It's, you know, how do, how do we reconcile by finding or making peace with each other? Sometimes it does mean uh, like Nicodemus giving what he stole from people, but that's, it's not something that needs to be mandated. It's like we've said, it's, it came from his heart, but that's one way he made peace. But mm-hmm. yeah. There's many ways to make peace other than like uh, um, through money. <clears throat> Sometimes it's admitting the things that we actually, the sins that we actually committed to each other. Yeah. And confessing those sins to one another 
and ask for forgiveness from one another. I always think of like those really insincere apologies that you're sort of forced to give as a kid. <laughs> like I, I was, I'm a middle child. Um, I know you guys growing up probably had to do this as too, where it's like you had done something and it's like, well, say you're sorry. And then you, you just saying sorry and you didn't mean it at all. Like that's, <laughs> well, but it's performed stop. right. Sorry. That's, or like, you know, you'd be like, okay, now hug it out. And you'd like squeeze extra hard. Like, <laughs> you know, just, but that just proves again, our, our selfishness, that, that performative repentance. It, it's not true repentance. You are showing that you are the better person. It's not about you coming to terms with your sin and your need for a savior. It's about you being able to point out other sins. Performative repentance. That's good. Just coin that. Yeah, I feel good. like that's probably somewhere. <laughs> that's a really good, uh, uh, really good uh, well, statement. And you see it often. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody gets caught doing something, mm -hmm. and they, you know, they go before the crowd and they offer some formative repentance. Well, this it's the YouTuber apology. Yeah, that's that's. <laughs> There was an episode of the Orville. Have you ever seen that show? Orville. No, I know of it. I haven't seen an episode. So the guy does like some terrible act, and it's caught on camera. And this is—it's a sci-fi show, and they go to different planets. So he's on an alien planet. He does something he shouldn't have ever done in the city square, and it's all caught on camera. So they arrest him, and uh, the way their society is set up, they have these laws. If you break certain laws, you're going to be executed. But. You don't have to be executed if you go on the apology tour. <laughs> and so he has to go on all the all these talk shows and things and he has to he has to apologize. But he's like, I don't really do nothing wrong. I'm not apologizing. And the thing is, the only way he gets out of being executed is if he goes on the talk shows and gets enough likes. Uh, oh. So he's got to get a certain amount of likes. Yeah. He's got to get a certain amount of likes, and so he's got like this PR and his publicist, and to say, just pretend like this. You can. We even got fake tears. We can pump up your eyes and see on camera and everything, and then you get a whole bunch of likes, and you'd be good to go. But then he's like, I didn't do anything wrong, so I'm not going to fake apologize. And then anyway, the episode resolves a different way, but it's, it's like that's our culture, yeah. Now, where the only way you have, if you say something that's not. A lot in line with the culture you see with athletes all the time now they say something yep. and then they have to backtrack and i was disrespectful and i apologize and then they're okay because they've submitted to the narrative whether what they said is true or not right mm -hmm. performative repentance i like that there's i mean a really harrowing instance of when this backfired i don't know if you guys are familiar with the youtuber shane dawson um but like he came out with this like statement saying that he was so sorry for some of the past controversial things that he had done and how he's a bit different person now. And he was kind of like un unprompted taking accountability, which is what he called his video. And it was a completely insincere apology that ended up bring like destroying him because it opened the gates to all of the, I mean, really horrific things that he had done on YouTube in the past, like wearing blackface and sexually explicit material with children. And just like, it just opened the floodgates. And so his need not to actually take accountability, but to be seen as taking accountability is what kind of invited the morality police to tear him to shreds, which is what happened. And like, in one way, 
it's good because this he is a like his material should not be you know seen on youtube and in another way it's bad because like what has this taught him and what has this taught people who think like him and what is this taught right so now we're not going to make restitution for anything we're just going to hide the path there's no work towards reconciliation right. there's no it's not it's repentance punishment. yeah but then it's also moral superiority for the moral police. Like, right. I never did that, so I can... So therefore I can... So his whole, like... Yeah, it was just... Why Why did you think this would work? That... But see, I think there's a... There's a... There's a, a culture of fear out there that they don't want to be called a bigot or ostracized, so they... Yeah. You hide your tweets. Mm -hmm. Well, they'll hide... But then they'll apologize because they're... They got to get in good graces. You got to get in front of it. Yeah. Instead of saying, no, guess what? There's an objective truth, you know, with sexuality and race and how you're supposed to treat people. And this is what scripture says. And I'm not going to apologize for scripture because it's true. But people, and we, we kind of started to see this in, in the American church, we're just kind of like submitting to the culture. Because they don't want to be seen as outside of the culture or not a part of the culture. This is Everyone the is welcome standard. here. Everyone is welcome here, right. which is truly the open invitation to the church. Yeah. But in order to do what you're saying there, everyone is welcome here, but we'll, we'll write it on a flag. You know, a special flag of special colors. We'll do certain. You know, we'll have. We'll add to it. Everyone is welcome here, and that includes you. Rather than leaving it at. I don't want to descend into platitudes, but like, there's a reason that it is. It is come as you are, but it does not stay as you are, and so. Well, it's impossible. It's you cannot be a follower of Christ. And not become more like him. Mm -hmm. And so the need that you are fine the way you are is damning people. Yeah, that's a classic example. Yeah, you got cancer, but I'm not going to tell you that. Just come to, come to the doctor's office, okay? But I'm going to tell you you got cancer. Yeah. Yeah, come every week. Yeah. Take these two pills and these two sugar pills and go. Have a dinner every quarter. But. I'm not going to tell you you got cancer. I don't want to make them upset. I don't want them to think they've done something wrong. Or make them sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we have to do it compassionately and lovingly. Yes. Right. Because yes. we're just as guilty as they are. All right, let's wrap up. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts? Um, next session be the first Friday in March, um, which is very fortunate because symphony stuff is the second week in March. So thank goodness I'm going to be able to be there. It's going to be fine. Um, we're going to be reading the last question in part three and the first question in part four. So nine and 10. Um, and yeah, just getting ready to look at the transition between these two parts. Cool. All right. Can I put you on the spot, Elijah? Pray for us. God, 
You are so holy and so committed to redemption that you oppose all sin, our individual sins as well as those we embed in systems whenever we frame injustice by by statute. Mark our hearts with that same commitment as we seek to bring redemption to fallen to fallen systems, may we not fall into the traps of automatically assuming that most damning explanations for for inequalities, ignoring evidence that may not support our ideologies, or telling self-serving narratives that pin all oppression on this or that or that people group. And most of all, make your first thing our first thing. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is of first importance according to your word. Help us contend earnestly for the gospel and not try to add anything to the complete and sufficient saving work of Jesus. It would be easy to say we believe that we believe that gospel and then sit on our thumbs while people suffer. So please push us to do the kind of justice you command. The justice that is the justice that is not the gospel itself, but flows beautifully from the gospel. Amen. Thank you.